Hi everybody! Welcome to another Witch Hassle. I am, as always, your intrepid and reasonably good-looking host, Cooper Wilhelm. And I'm glad you could join me today. We're going to be talking to Rain Mason about the intersection of psychological therapeutic practice and divination, tarot, things of that sort. It's a lovely chat. And I am very pleased to bring it to you. And of course, before we get there, we have a Plague Magic Minute. And this is a special one, because it is kind of a guest spot, because it comes courtesy of Matthew Hadfield, the guest from the previous episode of Witch Hassle, which happened, gosh, like three weeks ago, which feels like a long time, but I've been working like 15-hour days at my job, and also trying to apply to grad school. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a busy little... I'm a busy little bee these days. So our, our Plague Magic Minute has to do with a Japanese spirit named Amabie, which is this spirit who, according to Kazuhiku Komatsu, an emeritus professor at the International Research Center for Japanese Studies in Kyoto, as quoted in an NPR article on the subject, in 1846, Amabie emerged from the ocean and spoke in human language, predicting six years of good harvests, followed by a wave of diseases, but advised, draw me and showed the people so that you can be free from disease. So there's an idea that, that the act of drawing this creature and disseminating the image has a sort of apotropaic property that can help dispel some sort of mass contagion. And, you know, I can't show you the image because it's it's an audio medium but uh the the standard depiction would seem to be um something sort of along the lines of a mermaid with the face of a bird but there has been a resurgence in in art around this spirit in the midst of covid19 and so i'm going to put a link in the show description to this npr article and also to a Twitter account that has been aggregating images of this spirit. So there's a there's a little Plague Magic Minute for you, uh, courtesy of uh, Matthew Hatfield. So thank you so much to Matt. And now we're on to my interview with Rain Mason. Uh, so Dr. Rain Mason is a postdoctoral fellow in hospital-based psychotherapy and adult psychoanalysis at the Austin Riggs Center and they completed their doctorate in clinical psychology at Fordham University under the mentorship of Dr. Fred Wirtz and are licensed as a clinical psychologist by the state of New York and they are also a reader of tarot and a theurgist and we had a great chat so I'm, I'm really pleased to bring this to you and I, I hope you enjoy it very much. Let's start with um, your your therapy practice for a second here. Which therapeutic mode or philosophy do you tend to sort of work out of? Sure. So I am in a four-year fellowship right now in psychoanalytic psychotherapy uh, in a hospital-based practice. I'm at a small psychiatric hospital and training to do intensive psychoanalytic psychotherapy. So I tend to see my patients four times a week and people have all kinds of misconceptions about psychoanalytic psychotherapy, um, thinking that it's sort of Freudian, but it's actually 
evolved quite a lot from that. There's a lot of different schools, and I, you know, I try to draw from different ones. Uh, Melanie Klein, Jacques Lacan, Carl Jung. I'm fairly eclectic, but psychoanalytically rooted. And I'm curious about, so, you know, there there are ways in which psychoanalytic therapy and and going to see a diviner can kind of parallel one another and i really want to talk about that but before we even get to that like what came first for you was it was it sort of the the spiritual occult side of things or was it this interest in in mental health it's a good question and one that's hard to really pin down with any complete accuracy because there's a lot of autobiography that kind of weaves together i you know i i was interested in uh, roughly speaking the occult as a teenager but at the time my father was basically like you can't do this in my house and for various reasons it kind of fell off the map and i went through kind of a long rationalist phase <laughs> kind of in my late teens early 20s it's very atheistic and by the end of my 20s that was just not working out and neither was the career path i was on which um, i was doing web design at the time and there was a moment when i kind of i'd been into zen buddhism was starting a meditation practice and basically just started listening to the world is the only way i really know how to put it i think in retrospect there's a kind of quasi-divinatory feel to it. But that's actually when I sort of listened and heard that uh, my you know, path, my purpose was to uh, go into the mental health profession. And so I've been now uh, on that journey for about a decade. I got my PhD two years ago, but it was during that time when I was in grad school that I rekindled my interest in the occult, trained as a tarot reader, and have really kind of taken it from there. So I think that, you know, the seeds of that might have been early or even coexistent, earlier than or coexistent with um, my interest in psychology and psychotherapy, but at least in my public facing and professional mode, certainly psychology is at the helm. On your site, you say that you you offer consultations for um, professionals in in psychology vis-a-vis orienting themselves toward things like divination and, and so on and and you mentioned that no one has taken you up on this yet but more broadly speaking do you do you find that these two parts of your life come into conflict when you're when you're working with professional colleagues in the mental health field because I, I would not be surprised if many of them would think of an active spiritual life of this sort in what we might call say alternative spiritualities to kind of like you know siphon it perhaps completely unnaturally off from you know mainstream religion or something like that but like i i would not be surprised if a number of your colleagues might sort of look at this as a kind of psychopathology or a kind of i don't know unprofessional non-materialism or something like that Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a it's an interesting and kind of nuanced question, and I I think what I would say is that the fear of that has been greater than the reality. I I think that on an individual basis, individual researchers or clinicians that I've encountered have not been particularly antagonistic towards towards me and tend to be kind of receptive in in a general way. But I feel like the the culture of the field as a whole has a larger bias. So I, I guess one way to put it uh, in more magical terms would be that kind of individuals 
might not be particularly prejudiced, but kind of the egregore of the field is prejudiced. You know, I can remember some examples where, you know, I did a lot of kind of more mainstream research before I did my dissertation on the tarot. And one of my dissertation committee members, when he was giving me feedback on my dissertation proposal, essentially told me if anyone else was proposing this, I'd be really skeptical. But since it's you, I know you'll do a good job with it. <laughs> and so part of uh, part of my sort of embodiment of this kind of one foot in both camps existence is to kind of be an ambassador. You know, I, I feel like I have the professional credentials that professionals in my field take me seriously and, and don't sort of think that it undermines me necessarily to have these beliefs or practices. And so I can, I, I'm hoping to be someone who can kind of extend an olive branch and help, you know, people converse who wouldn't necessarily know much about each other, or might be skeptical about each other. I find this has generally been true if people respect your reputation generally, they find it hard to dismiss you out of hand. And there's an unfortunate kind of double standard that goes along with that, where you kind of have to prove yourself to be taken seriously. But that's kind of how I found things. I, I, I do find that it's more common for me to hear clinicians say, disparaging uh, a patient or saying, you know, so-and-so believes, say that their uh, psychotic symptoms are, you know, messages from the ancestors. Isn't that crazy? And it's not quite that outrageous as I'm kind of making it out to be, but there, there is a kind of way that certain beliefs, it's not even really considered that they could be, uh, that a reasonable, rational person could hold them. So, I, I'm trying to sort of slowly position myself to be able to mediate or speak to both sides of this. And one of the, the things you flag is a potential issue for for therapists who are, are working into the areas of divination is this idea of transference and counter-transference dilemmas. Could you speak for a minute about that? Because I feel like that Something about that resonates a little bit. Sure. Would it, would it be helpful for me to just say what those terms mean a little bit uh, so I, listeners have a context? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think these are, you know, very specific terms in the discipline, I'm sure. Right. So generally speaking, so transference is grounded this, in this idea that, you know, we rely on past relationships to make sense of new relationships, of course, right? So, you know, when you meet someone, you try to fit them into kind of your existing templates for how you think people are, how you think people like that are, because people present a certain way to you. Now, we fall back on these templates also in particularly charged situations. And that's really what therapy kind of creates a space for. There's a big asymmetry in the relationship, both in terms of disclosure and power. There's a very strict setting to it. So, you know, patients naturally imbue the therapist with all kinds of like assumptions, projections, fears, wishes, all based on their prior experience and less based in kind of the real relationship with the therapist. And that's what we call transference, right? And, you know, therapists aren't immune to this too, of course. You know, we can get things wrong about our patients when our issues get stirred up. We can project just as well as anybody else can. And that's what we would call counter-transference. Back in the old days, uh, you know, talking to Freud and his disciples, counter-transference was, was viewed as sort of something that was like a problem in the therapist and should be eliminated or like uh, kept at bay. These days with more relational modes of psychoanalysis, counter-transference is viewed more as a, a piece of data. You know, my feelings, my thoughts, my reactions are, are viewed as data about the relationship. 
there's something intersubjective, kind of like between me and the patient, right? So uh, at a basic level, like what I'm speaking to in the idea of transference, countertransference dilemmas is around these issues of, say, a patient's belief in spirits, magic, divination. There's a lot that can kind of happen between a person with those beliefs and someone who's in an authority position, right? So we can think like maybe the therapist will assume the patient is psychotic, immature, or avoiding reality because of their interest in these topics. But it's quite likely also that that's based in or at least rooted in in some way the therapist's worldview and assumptions, and maybe less so in kind of the clinical reality of the the patient's lived experience. So maybe to, to think about like an example, say a, say a therapist is seeing a patient who links up their experiences in their life and talks about their experience in terms of astrological transits. You know, they get an injury and they make a reference to like a Mars transit, say. The therapist might have, in a knee-jerk kind of way, see that as a defense, like a way of intellectualizing or denying reality or getting away from it in some way. And that may be true. I mean, as a as a therapist, I know all too well, like literally anything can be used as a psychological defense. But if if that's kind of assumed rather than inferred from evidence in the patient's actual experience, you know, the therapist may try to interpret that away or get the patient to give up those beliefs and speak to what's quote unquote really going on, uh, which is going to do something in the relationship. The patient's maybe beginning going to become tense, withdrawn, guarded, and it may seriously damage a uh, kind of trust between them. You know, on the other side of things, a patient may, because of their past experiences with caregivers or authorities, be really kind of reticent to bring forward these aspects of their life, their spiritual life and um, occult interests, because they assume rightly or wrongly that their therapist is not going to be open to hearing about those things. And so there's a kind of wall up that prevents a deepening of the relationship. You know, a patient may also feel like the therapist has to agree with them and endorse some particular worldview in order to work together. Now, it's not obvious why that would have to be true, you know, because my dentist doesn't need to you know, be a theurgist to be able to help me with my teeth. And I don't think my therapist needs to like know the Orphic hymns to understand how my mind works. But if there's this kind of like insistence or demand on either part to understand things a certain way, the relationship really kind of breaks down. And from where I'm sitting as someone who is both a psychologist and, you know, someone who has an active uh, magical and divinatory practice, from a bird's eye view to me, this just looks like standard relational dilemmas about how to deal with misunderstanding, cultural difference, rupture and repair. But these topics are so charged and carry such a cultural weight behind them that for a therapist, the, the way through the dilemma might not be so obvious. And so this is a normal kind of situation in which someone might seek supervision or consultation, but there are very few therapists that I know of that sort of say like, hey, uh, I'm willing to speak to these things. So in that sense, my offer, my offer of consultation to mental health professionals is a genuine offer of a service. Now, I think it's also a signal to people outside of the professional way of saying like, hey, if you're into these practices, you don't need to feel alone with that. There's, you know, the whole field isn't against you in some way. You don't feel like it's, you don't need to feel like it's normal or acceptable for your therapist to just, just dismiss or judge your practices. Maybe there's a way through this. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And actually it's, it's, 
I'm really glad you brought that around to patients having this signal that this is a that they should expect something other than complete uh, rebuke from their therapist for engaging in these practices. I I have spoken to people in this in these sort of you know occult mystical community who have had these sort of concerns that you know how do I find a therapist who is going to be cool with all this other stuff that I am doing um, and not pathologize it. And I I I am hopeful in hearing that this is a that this is a, a realm that people can go into with a certain measure of confidence that they can have their needs met without having to completely hide this part of themselves yeah you know uh, lately within the past certainly 20 years maybe a bit more the field of psychology has been moving more towards what you know what they call a like cultural competence and a kind of respect for different worldviews but you know i think i would say that more mystical or occult practices are certainly on the vanguard of that. And um, I think just having someone with some credibility as a researcher, as a scholar to say like, hey, these aren't just pathologies. This, These are forms of cultural practice and understanding. You know, I, I, I hope it will provide some help in moving the dial a little because it's not hard to imagine, you know, someone, another patient who's say drawing on their Christian or Jewish heritage to make sense out of their life is going to be treated in a very different way than someone, you know, is speaking about astrology or Kimbanda or, or hoodoo or, you know, whatever it is that the, the therapist just doesn't have as much cultural exposure to. Yeah. This is actually making me remember, um, I, I went to go see a therapist for a little bit at one point and I was, I, you know, had all this, concern and anxiety about bringing up this sort of you know side of myself and her response was i think to sort of interpret it through the lens of capitalism really quickly and so she sort of became like a job coach asking me how much i was charging for tarot readings and then saying that's not nearly enough if you consider doing it over the phone um which you know love to be supported but if we want to put that in astrological lens of course a capricorn would turn his therapist into a job coach anyway since we are actually on this topic, I think this one's well into this idea that, you know, so when you did a review of the literature, what did you find in terms of how psychological research, at least heretofore, has regarded divination and magical thinking and sort of defined these terms? Yeah, so this is really interesting. And one of the reasons I, I kind of got so excited in this project in the first place is there's actually very little research actually really about divination. <laughs> There's a fair amount more research that just kind of mentions divination. And one of the places it gets uh, what I'm calling mentioned is in this literature on magical thinking, which it, magical thinking is a kind of broad concept that actually is not super well defined. If, if you actually go and look, it doesn't have a single fixed definition. A lot of researchers, when they use this term, they, they speak about the propensity to ascribe so-called uh, non-standard causality to events. So what that means is like offering explanations that are you violate the laws of nature or normal laws of cause and effect or like uh, principles of ordinary transmission of energy or information. These are like actual ways that people uh, write about this. 
I, I find this knowledge, this way of framing it kind of odd. There's like a hand wave or a wink and a nod here as if psychologists are saying like, oh, we all know what we're talking about here. We know what reality is and it's these other people who think something else is going on. Um, but it's also strange because almost no one in their normal life talks about like the transmission of energy or information or like cause and effect. You know, normally people are talking about like reasons and motivations and like desires, right? So th there's kind of some odd thing going on there. I mean, other ideas of magical thinking are like belief in purely mental causation or um, conflation of symbolic metaphorical language with realistic and descriptive uses of language, or like sometimes people will just say belief in magic. But magical thinking is this concept that's been measured with various uh, questionnaires, and the items on the questionnaires refer to paranormal, anomalous, superstitious, religious ideas. And it's really interesting because over time, you'll see that the, the definitions have kind of shifted. Like back in the 70s, you know, UFOs, witchcraft, and magic would appear there, but so would like yoga, meditation, and hypnosis fall under this category. And, you know, those are things that are nowadays pretty normal, if, if not even part of mainstream wellness. So you'll see things like also conspiracy theories, superstitions, tele telepathy, dreams, astrology, all of these sort of fall under one umbrella category. And so there's there's something here that's not just about sort of physical worldview or non-physical, there's something also cultural because these things shift over time. And what I did in my in my literature review is I, I sort of traced this concept um, back in psychology. And what you what you find is that essentially uh, Sigmund Freud and Jean Piaget lifted this concept from late 19th century anthropology, folks like uh, Fraser and E.B. Tyler. And that's where you see, I think, what's really going on under the hood, because magical thinking back then was this concept that was kind of deeply colonial. It was used to delimit kind of how civilized people think from how, quote unquote, primitive people think. And primitive, of course, is an extremely loaded term in the academy. You know, it's it's used to connote... Uh, it, the ways that um, non-European people, primarily people of African origin, were seen as like savage, bestial, otherwise inferior. And so this concept in psychology got used to refer to the ways that children and neurotic people sort of thought like primitives. And the idea was, as Piaget and Freud would have it, is that in normal, mature development, you just kind of grow out of magical thinking. And if you don't, it's a kind of a problem that indicates developmentally or culturally primitive ways of seeing the world. And consequently, like, where does magical thinking get measured and used? Well, in psychopathology, it's associated with OCD and schizotypy and you have various forms of psychopathology. It's also used, it, it continues to be used as a kind of developmental concept. But I guess I would also add that lately there's been a kind of shift and there's researchers like Eugene Sabotsky is, is kind of at the, the forefront here. He's done a, a number of experiments that show that actually, you know, most adults don't really grow out of magical thinking. It just kind of goes underground, <laughs> you know, in cultures like 
uh, American culture where magical thinking is not really culturally accepted or normative, it kind of gets suppressed. But if you stress people out, it'll pop out. Whereas if you go to say like rural Mexico, and I say I use that as an example because they he actually teamed up with a researcher from Mexico to to do a comparative experiment where where belief in magic is more common, the beliefs are just much more on the surface. And you don't have to experimentally manipulate people to have them pop out. So it's it's this sort of concept that's been used to denigrate these beliefs without much sort of um, attention to the ways that these beliefs are kind of culturally constructed, cult- culturally useful, actually expressive of a certain type of logic or way of seeing the world so yeah maybe i'll leave it there this is this is really interesting because i i feel like there's a parallel to be drawn here that would never have occurred to me otherwise that the attempts to sort of decolonialize decolonialize um the way that anthropology is conducted is also affecting a sort of way of trying to treat psychology more like a kind of domestic anthropology but in its sort of positive sense i feel like i'm what i'm saying is not making any sense well i think it does make sense because because anthropology is kind of on the vanguard here and 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 i think you're saying that psychology is sort of starting to like take that on yeah right a little bit or yeah well i think that's right and it, it points to there's a kind of like split in psychology that's actually quite old which is what kind of a science is psychology is it a natural science or is it what uh, Diltai called a human science? And this has implications for like what methods you use. Do we study people with math or do we study people with words? And I, I, I'm clearly more sort of in the latter camp and that's why I lean more heavily on anthropology. But I think the, you know, if you see people as objects, that lends itself to a kind of colonial lens more so than if you see them as subjects. And do you see this... Um... It's interesting because I, I, you know, looking from the outside towards psychology, it seems like there has been an increasing move of late toward emphasizing the the sort of more quantitative side of psychology. Things like brain imaging, for example, playing a seemingly a very large role in psychological research and the idea of the brain as a as a material object that has material consequences. <laughs> Do you see that tension? between these two sort of sides of psychology, especially as as this sort of more qualitative side seems to kind of come back into its own a little bit or, or try to seize more of a place of, I suppose, um, centrality. Do you, do you see this tension being strong enough to sort of split psychology in two into two separate disciplines almost at this point? That's a, that's a really good question. I, you know, I thought about this a lot when I was in grad school. There's actually a literature on whether psychology is a unified discipline. And, uh, you know, because it's a literature, of course, there's people on both sides. I don't know whether it will split. I mean, there's a lot of schisms within psychology. And I think it's it's because... There's really no good, complete, well-agreed-upon way of thinking about what mind even is. I mean, I'm into psychoanalysis, not not because I think it's kind of the be-all, end-all, because it's really the theory that I think has the most claim to giving an at-all a theory that is at all capable of like capturing the the real complexity of lived experience. I, I think that you know this issue of brain disorders versus more 
I like thinking about psychological disorders rather than mental disorders, but um, it's a question that has really animated me. I mean, I wrote a paper on uh, our mental disorders, brain disorders, and sort of drawing on philosophy to argue that no, at least some or a lot of the time, it doesn't make sense to think of them that way. But I think the you know the reality of this question on the ground, you mentioned capitalism earlier, it's like there's a lot of money in viewing psychology from the perspective of how to manipulate and control people, not just manipulate and control variables, but people too. Uh, it's, no, it's no accident, I think, that advertising came out of psychology. E.B. Watson, the famous behaviorist, became a kind of advertising person later in his career. So, you know, I don't know if the field will split. I don't know if the sort of more human science side will, will come to the fore. But I do know that the the more humanistic, qualitative, human science, existential, psychoanalytic ways of thinking are being crowded out in part because like there's a lot of, say, defense department funding for psychology. There's a lot of medical funding in psychology. So I think we're, this is an issue that's been in our culture for a really long time, and it's going to be in the discipline for a really long time. Actually, your mention of Defense Department funding kind of brings me back to something I did want to ask you about before we move too far away from from the sort of the, the review of literature that you did before you sort of talked about your own study and your dissertation. But these are all sort of, you know, I, I, I think second order sort of conversations about, about magic and divination and things like that. But how much psychological research did you did you turn up in terms of the just sort of whether or not it could be empirically demonstrated that, you know, magic, psychic phenomena, divination, things like that have some sort of basis in our reality? Because my, my sense is that is that recently the Academy has been very reluctant to do any kind of serious research in this, in part because of, you know, I mean, they, you know, the, what was his name? James Randi recently died and made such a career out of performatively debunking anything that seemed beyond the pale. And I feel like that kind of sense that, you know, you can't do serious science about these topics has been pretty pervasive for a bit. But maybe I'm maybe I'm mistaken and giving in to the propaganda. Like, how how much research did you turn up of that sort? Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot, I, I mean, honestly. And I, I'm trying to think offhand. Um, I don't have it kind of uh, ready to hand in my mind so much, but I, I want to say that a lot of the things that I turned up are, were more from like the the 90s or the 2000s. I don't think there's a lot of people sort of actively at this. I mean, I know like Dean Radin has still has a lab and I guess uh, Daryl Bem is still at this, but you know, I don't think for the most part they're looking at divination. Now, there's a there's a second question there, which is like, how great was the research that was there on divination, you know, and what were they even doing anyway? So this is uh, kind of, as you, you say, in this field of psi research, there's a psi phenomena being like anomalous or paranormal phenomena with unknown causes and trying to prove that like there's some kind of causality that's uh, outside of our normal way of thinking about it. And a lot of the ways that the studies would do that is that they would use a divinatory mechanism like the, the I Ching or the tarot and try to basically see if people could distinguish, say, like a real reading from like a fake reading. So like a tarot Turing test. Yeah, kind of. And it's like that's you, – you might understand kind of like why – someone would do that because you're trying to set up an experiment and see like, is there information in one that's not in the other? But on the other hand, it's like, if you're actually interested in 
does divination as it's actually practiced like work or mean something to people you're not setting up what would what we would call an ecologically valid scenario when you know when you go to say the botanica or like the magic shop and get a reading it's not like you get two readings and you have to decide which is the real one right that'd be pretty weird but that's what people are asked to do in labs and so it's this sort of strange thing like what is this actually telling us is it actually about divination or is it about something else right and now another thing that people would do is say generate a bunch of tarot draws and see whether the cards come out randomly now i can tell you from my own experience that they don't I actually collected my own personal data on this above like 900 some draws. They're profoundly not random. But that what does that tell you? Well, it either tells you that there's some like mistake going on or there's some like mechanism that you don't really know about that's at play. Uh, but it doesn't really solve a question. So, uh, you know, I for my own self personally, I, I find it hard to get really worked up or invested in, in this research because it's I'm not sure. I'm just not sure how much any of it actually tells us about real divination i think that's a very good stance to take on that honestly because it is also i feel like there's this way in which there's some sense for people that maybe like this thing that i feel intuitively is true if only there were some empirical study that that demonstrated then i i would have the validation that i need in some way about this to confront a cruel world about my my own internal truths and i feel like if you're if you're looking for that validation it's really never going to come well and, and the seeking of that validation is pointing to the existential problem which is that you've basically lived a life in which you've become alienated from your personal experience and you need someone else to tell you whether it's true or not moving to the actual study that you conducted. So you you looked at a number of, of pairs of tarot readers and, and querents. And I am curious because um, one of the things you said in your results was, if I may quote, readers do not necessarily assume anything specific about how readings work, but rather take as an assumption, hypothesis, or act of faith that the cards that come up convey meaningful themes that can be interpreted Generally, readers adopt a kind of pragmatic hermeneutics about how the process works. And I, I am curious about this idea of this pragmatic hermeneutics. Do you, do you get the sense that a lot of tarot readers don't really have a strong sense of exactly what is happening when they read tarot? Like sort of who is speaking when the cards speak? <laughs> you know, I, I think it really varies. I think it really varies. So... In my study and in, in my own personal experience, I don't, I don't think that tarot is one thing, you know, because we're talking about a practice that's everything from like a person opening up a deck for the first time with the little white book and giving someone a reading at a party to someone who is, say, channeling ancestral spirits or deities or or whatever it is, right? And so I also think that some of the readers in my study, because you know, I, I was also a reader at Terror Society. These are people that I that I knew personally as well. I, I got the sense that for the purposes of the interview, people pulled back a little bit in terms of <laughs> stating with with certainty what what was going on. I think that in my experience, more professional readers and and better readers do have a more well defined stance on it but don't necessarily want to represent that to people to kind of because they're not trying to kind of inflict a worldview. They're trying to provide a service, right? Mm. 
I think that there there is a kind of way that I think a lot of readers are sort of open to what the truth is. I also found that people tended to take in information from multiple streams. You know, it's not like spirits are talking to you or you're looking at the symbols on the cards, right? Or you've memorized certain meanings or you have a relationship with the cards that have sort of shown you that X is associated with Y. Kind of all of these are at play at once. And then any particular reading. So what, you know, maybe it's it's important to, to stress that you know, my dissertation is premised on the phenomenological method where we're looking at what people are actually doing and what their experience actually is. Now, during a reading, I don't think most readers are necessarily sort of self-conscious about or reflexive about the actual process that's going on. They're just doing their thing. Now, after the reading, if you ask like, well, how did you come to that? They have a theory about it, or they, they can sort of like look back and tell you what their experience was and kind of where that was coming from, maybe historically in their life. But in the same way, you know, when I'm in the consulting room with a patient, I'm not offering, I'm not sort of like, as it were, like flipping through Winnicott or Melanie Klein in my mind and coming up with a a theory about what's happening. I'm responding pretty spontaneously, right? Yeah. So I I think that what I was finding in the, the actual research was that in the actual practice itself, the theory is not really in the room necessarily. For some people it is, for some people it's not. You know, for people who, for readers that had a much more sort of what we would call like a cult or spiritual experience, you know, that's what they had. For other readers, less so. But I think that what I meant by that pragmatic hermeneutics line was sort of like, ultimately, I think readers are focused on like, is this helpful or is it not? They're not focused on sort of like, what's the genealogy of the truth? Right. This actually is a, this brings up something I wanted to ask you about, because I, I get the sense that a lot of folks weren't necessarily coming to divinatory readings for something that we might call facts or the truth. You know, they weren't necessarily coming to it to ask a question that had a sort of verifiable meaning necessarily, you know, like what will happen to me tomorrow? You know, give me the, the, the day plan of my life. It, and I'm curious, what, um, especially for, for, for queerants who are not interested in that sort of thing per se, what is what would you say is the primary draw of going to a tarot reader for a lot of folks if we really sort of look at it in, in the cold light of day? <laughs> well, well, I think that th- this actually connects up with your question about sort of like uh, the studies that are trying to sort of prove whether tarot works or not. And I, I think that that, those studies take a kind of limited view of like, if oh, tarot predicts this, did it actually come true or not? Whereas I think in actual divinatory practice, you know, the questions that people are bringing are questions about their lives. You know, you're not interested in like some statistical probability of whether X or Y will happen. Like you're trying to figure out something about something that matters to you. That's not an experiment that you're not going to be able to try multiple ways and your question, you're asking something that's sort of deeply personal a lot of the time about your well-being, about your love life, about your career. I, I think that people who um, come to tarot or, or divination sort of more seriously, you know, they're not thinking about their lives in sort of like causal terms. 
they're asking questions that matter, that are subjective, that are personal, that are sort of flowing from their existential like, lived experience. And they're coming to someone for help because they don't know how to solve that problem on their own. You know, something's kind of broken down, right? So I don't think it's simply a matter of people coming for, say, like validation or confirmation of something. I think that there's an experience that people are looking for because they're having trouble bridging something. They have a question that they don't know how to answer. And I think that people come to therapy kind of for similar reasons, because something's not right in their life. Something's not fulfilling. Something's not sort of clicking. And I think that that's that's a kind of similarity between the two practices. You also point to, to a kind of serious play that people also go for something that, that perhaps is a little like a less sort of, you know, driven by the heart of, of one's problems, but more sort of by looking for a particular kind of, it's interesting. You, you, you describe it as being a kind of entertainment, but one that is not really akin to the popular entertainments of say, going to a movie or um, going to whatever everybody else does for fun. I have no idea. Uh, reading a book, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, I think, it's not just it's not just entertainment most of the time. I mean, sometimes it is. Like you know, people read at parties, and like that's a thing that people do. And like, haha, like wow, I got to start reading at a party. But I think it's more like you know, within the psychoanalytic literature, like we take the idea of pretend play really seriously, or like play therapy, right? It's like kids, kids aren't just entertaining themselves; they're working something out about like how to be in the world. They're trying on identities. They're working through things. They're playing They're playing at sort of like, what if the world were like this, right? So there's a great book by the psychoanalyst D.W. Winnicott called Playing in Reality. And he says something like um, that it's, it's only in playing that the child or adult is able to like be creative and use the whole personality. It's only in, in being creative that the individual discovers the true self. And I think that there's something right about that. Like, in the kind of play that I'm talking about, it's it's not just sort of like playing foosball, but it's a kind of play that's like trying to render the world more intelligible. And I think that that's one of the real advantages of tarot or something like that. It's like you can step into this room, especially if it's not sort of like, you know, at least in Brooklyn, a lot of the people coming to tarot readings weren't necessarily people who had a fully, say, magically operant worldview, but were sort of like maybe on the edges of it or like trying something out. And you can step into the room and sort of try something on. You can try on a new idea, discard an old one, but you're there in this kind of liminal space where there's a kind of as if quality. It's kind of like trying on clothes in a boutique. You get to like see what you would look like if you bought that article, right? I think in a tarot reading or, or in a in divination more generally, you can try on an idea. What would my life be like if I did take that job? Like in a, in a very simplistic kind of a way, it's like, you know, you flip a coin, should I do X or should I do X or not? The coin comes up and then you have an emotional reaction to it. Through that emotional reaction, you haven't committed to doing something. You haven't changed the world, but you've changed how you're able to see the world. And it, similarly, like once you leave the, the tarot consulting room, when you return to the world, you don't lose the experience you have, you you had outside of the divinatory consultation, you know, you then you get to actually be in the position of doing the thing or not doing the thing, actually trying out living in the existential horizons of that reading. 
but at least in the reading itself, it's it's a kind of as if place. You can try it on. You can imagine. And I think that that, that space to imagine something, to sort of bring something to life without the full risk of committing to it, that provides a kind of like a, what I, I think the term I used in my dissertation was like an occasion for contemplation. You can kind of, it provides a kind of context and setting to think through something in it, like from a more oblique angle. I see like the emotional value and the, 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 the contemplative value of something like that. And we've already talked about the idea that people might be going to a diviner for the same reasons that they might go to, to therapy. And I, I am curious about this link that you draw between the sort of universality of divination across human cultures, more or less, with its role often in folk medicine. And I was wondering if you could talk for a moment about this, the sense that, you know, especially if the divination can be something akin to therapy, when we think of divination as having some sort of sense of remedy to it, how much of that is this idea that you are given a kind of prescription based on what the results the divination are? And how much of that do you think is really the, the process of going to a diviner itself? That's an interesting question. I think it probably varies for different folks. And it also is going to depend a lot on the diviner's style. I mean, I'm thinking of someone like, you know, Dr. Al Cummins is like very heavy on prescriptions, right? He's, he's going to sort of <laughs> tell you what you ought to do. <laughs> Not every reader is going to do that. But I, I think that in terms of the therapeutic potential, some people... I think are coming for like a specific question and particularly like historically across or in, in non-Western cultures where divination is more common and more culturally accepted. I think it's more common for the divination to have a kind of more pragmatic function of like kind of answering a specific question in which, or, or, or sort of garnering wisdom, support, and advice from someone who's sort of in a, in a prestigious or important cultural role. Now, in our culture, in Western culture by and large, we don't really have that kind of a context. So, you know, I think that people coming to divination are, are often also, if they're not sort of like full, fully sort of in the practice already, often people, I think, reach out to divination because they're there's some kind of inchoate like sense of thinness of meaning in their day-to-day life. You know, there's a reason they go to like divination and not say an authority or a priest, right? I think that with both therapy and divination, sometimes people are kind of lacking this rich network of relationships and connections to shared symbols and values and feel, feel kind of existentially adrift in life. So, I, I mean, I, I may be going a little far afield from your question, but I think that one of the, like, personally for me, one of the advantages of divination is that, and, and one of the sort of real purposes of divination for our times and our place, I, I think that these experiences, these practices that potentiate, like, strong emotions experiences of connectedness, partly because they put people in relationship to what Carl Jung would call living symbols. He used this term living symbols to talk about symbols that are, he said, pregnant with meaning or can potentiate a sense of wonder and connection that are life-giving and life-enhancing. And I think that 
you know, I grew up in the in the Midwest, right? I, I grew up in a literally a town called Normal, Illinois. I'm not kidding. <laughs> and you know, growing up there, there was not this sort of like rich sense of of meaning and connection. I mean, like things were pretty like alienating and bleak, especially for a certain type of weird kid, right? So. I think a lot of people are coming to divination like lacking some sense of things. And I think that divination can not just sort of offer some validation or like empathy. I think there's something else going on, which could you can talk about in terms of spirituality, but you can also talk about this like particularly in the the tarot, I think that there, there's a series like the cards themselves are relatively historically recent. But a lot of the symbolism is quite old and neoplatonic. And there's this kind of sense of vitality and meaning. You know, people react just to the cards themselves. And so I think at best divination is kind of life enhancing in that way, not just through sort of imparting knowledge or advice or empathy or validation. But I think it gives people a sense that like maybe there's actually something more to the world. Maybe there there are these fonts of wisdom and meaning that maybe I haven't been exposed to, or I don't know how to access, but maybe this person does and can put me in touch with. I think that can be really powerful for people. Mm-hmm. I hope I didn't go way too far afield there, but <laughs> no, that was that was wonderful. I'm so glad you said that actually, because I was sort of, I was I, when I was thinking of of tarot in particular overlapping with psychoanalysis and with with psychology the 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 analog that sort of tends to come to mind for me is the thematic app perception test. Which, um, for for folks who who are not familiar with that, it's this this diagnostic tool. I'm not sure how much currency it still really has, but um, basically, you are you are shown sort of ambiguous tableaus, and you are asked questions about it. And the the, the purpose of the diagnosis is that you you are principally projecting onto the image. So if you ask like, what? How does this this boy playing a violin feel? And you you say like, this is you know that the diagnosis is in you projecting your your feelings conceivably onto the child. But like, this is so much richer than that. Like this idea that it, it is not you throwing yourself onto something that is ultimately kind of evocative but flat, but really sounds like much more of a receptive kind of nourishing that comes from from these images, which is just such a wonderful thought. Yeah, so <laughs> it's funny because I actually administer uh, both the thematic app perception test and the Rorschach test in my job. <laughs> so um, yeah, you actually you, you ask people to tell a story about the card, and so in the TAT, there's there's a kind of uh, tension between what's card, called a card pull. You know, how much does, does someone actually stick to the stimulus versus go off of it, use their imagination and like projection? Because, you know, you see this boy in the violin. If you talk about a teacher or parents, like they're not on the card, right? That came from your mind. <laughs> so you can tell some something about someone's, the way people think about relationships and gender and things like that with these tests. But with the tarot, you know, it was something that I encountered a lot as I embarked on this research project. People would, both in the literature and outside of it, they would draw this analogy to like a Rorschach test. And I'm like, man, I administer the Rorschach. It's not like that at all. <laughs> there's there's something very different going on. Because like the Rorschach's actually in, in some ways a better example because the cards don't symbolize anything. They're not symbols. They're just ink blots. Uh, and there's things that people see more commonly or not. Whereas on the tarot, there are symbols that are part of a shared world that signify one thing and not another, as Arthur Edward White says. And, and so there is 
with a, with a Rorschach, it can be actually kind of alienating for a person to do it because they're sort of thrown into their own mind. Whereas I think the tarot actually invites us out of our own mind and into it, like this stream of tradition and uh, symbolic potentials that are actually not dependent on any one of us. And, and I think that a lot of people in Western culture, particularly with the decline of uh, organized religion, certainly organized religion of any kind of real spiritual substance, I think it can be incredibly rejuvenating for people to encounter at least the idea that there's something more out there. And whether that more has to do with gods or spirits, or it just has to do with like living in a shared world where things are valuable and they matter, that's really powerful for people. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, I just got I just got hit by by this this idea of like how do we cure how do we cure the the societal malaise and nihilism? And it's like, oh, <laughs> here's a here's a potential avenue for that, I suppose. Um, yes, yeah, so, sorry, my parents met in seminary, so I have this kind of like preacher <laughs> vibe that this? I internalized. <laughs> okay, this isn't. I don't. I don't mean to sound tra- like two or three interviews ago. I was interviewing somebody whose uh, her her mother and father were a priest and a nun who left the clergy to get married, and her aunt and uncle were also a former priest and a nun. Who had gotten married? So I I didn't realize this just this just happens all the time. This is amazing. Um, wait, wow. Um, I'm just I'm just so many revelations. I feel like I should be uh be more professional and just be like, oh, this is fine. It just washes over me like like nothing. But, um, nah, retain that capacity for wonder. It's where the good stuff is. I mean, wonder and also just shock. So, <laughs> do, do you? I mean, so we have we have been talking a lot about this like, the idea of this that there's an, there's an overlap between tarot and and sort of uh, potential therapeutic practices and things like that. Do you do you tend to bring tarot and the like into into sessions with clients? I don't, um, and, and that's um, partly because. I mean, on, on on the one hand, I have a very specific job in a very particular institution. And, um, you know, I'm not just in private practice kind of doing my own thing. Like I'm in a, a training program, right? I mean, you know, I have my PhD and I'm a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of New York and all that. But like there's a particular job that I'm doing. And um, that job is not about me. It's about a hospital. It's about a system. It's about, you know, like this uh, network of people that depend on each other to take care of uh, people who are really quite troubled. And it's not my job and it's not what I've been hired for to uh, bring in my own personal beliefs or practices into it. I could foresee a, a life in which going forward, you know, I, I work in private practice. And uh, I think particularly as, as I'm sort of being more, quote unquote, out of the broom closet about my own uh, selfhood, um, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, I, I will get the opportunity to work with people where there is a kind of shared understanding or worldview and, and that that can be perhaps part of the work. But, you know, I also, I train in a system where we focus a lot on three things, role, task, and boundaries. And it's like, as a therapist, my role is a therapist. I am not a diviner. You haven't hired me for that. And if I start doing that, I've lost sight of the shared task in some way, unless we've negotiated that or, or done, you know, set a frame in which that's 
permissible and mutually desired. And I'm not, I, I think boundaries are, are just in, like in alchemy, you know, the the integrity of, of the vessels and the alembics has to be very, very strong. And, you know, you put one thing in one place and not another place and at the right time. If you break the boundaries in therapy, it's a problem and it's a potential breakdown of the relationship and the treatment. So I take very seriously, like what people have hired me to do or not hired me to do. <laughs> so actually I, I am now reluctant to ask the next question I was going to ask because of that though, because of course, if people hire someone for divination, they are hiring them for that. Even though I feel like a lot of people do go to a diviner for basically the same reason they might go to therapy and, and it might be because, you know, a diviner is somehow more, financially um within their means or simply they they feel like they're more accessible in some way maybe they 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 fear the um the authority associated with a with a with a psychotherapist or something like that but with boundaries in mind so feel free not to answer this question or to to to, to decide not to do this but like do you have any advice for for diviners who want to be more helpful and foster a more sort of healing atmosphere for their divination clients with, you know, completely accepting that, you know, this is not the same thing as therapy. This is not a substitute for therapy for folks who really should be doing that instead. Yeah, I'm happy to answer the question. I think it's a, there's a lot one could say. And while I do think it is true that divination is not, like therapy is certainly not divination, that much is clear. It's less obvious actually that divination is not therapy. I think there are, there are a lot of overlaps, which maybe we can talk about later. But I, I think that I would ground my response to that in what I was just saying, you know, about role, task, and boundaries. You know, for diviners, I think it's really important for you to have a pretty reflective self-knowledge about what you can do and what you can't do, what your expertise is and what it's not. You know, I, th I think we would probably, I hopefully all agree that a diviner should not, for example, like try to diagnose a mental illness or a medical disorder. And let's say like, you know, there's medical astrologers, right, who are specifically hired with that in mind. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like we all, like regardless of what service we're providing, we ought to be humble and honest about what we know and we don't know. You know, if you're if you flip up the cards and you give your reading and someone asks you a question and you don't know, or it's beyond your skill, or like if you're giving an astrological consultation and someone wants you to do a specific prediction and say like you don't know uh, perfections and zodiacal releasing, like you should be candid about that. You shouldn't try to wing it or channel it or like, you know, things that you weren't hired to do or maybe don't know how to do. Because like as a diviner, you know, people bring a lot to you in terms of like projections and expectations. I think we all like whether you're a therapist or a diviner, you have a potential to do harm when you overstep your authority, make promises you can't keep. I think, so I guess like the first thing I would recommend is like, be clear about your limitations and your boundaries. I also think that, um, you know, there's, I, I know astrologers who get formal training, who, who do more, let's say coursework, often focus at least a little bit on like counseling practices. And I think that that's something that any diviner could benefit from, you know, training in even just training in active listening can be really helpful. I know that a lot of people go into divination because they already, you know, have some empathic skills, but those can always be honed. I think that people can also, you know, 
work on making their readings and consultations more participatory and empowering for people, make it more of a conversation. And, you know, some you know, some querents might not want that, and that's fine. But if you've got a client who's just like hungry to learn something about themselves, like put the tools in their hand. Like divination should be liberatory, right? It's like the whole point of diagnosis, prediction, prescription is to help someone see clearly, like not just where they are, but what the path forward is. And that's not about sort of like sugarcoating things or putting a positive spin on bad situations, but about helping someone like see a path forward to you know, put their life in their own hands. I guess I would also like, while I've got a soapbox, like I think diviners should learn about trauma-informed care. I think diviners should learn about colonialism, racism, misogyny, transphobia, and really interrogate how you might be embodying harmful dynamics of power and privilege in your practices. I think the the potential, you know, I'm a kind of regular persona on Astro Twitter these days. And there's been some like major things going on in that community where people's lack of sensitivity to these issues has has caused real harm. And and so I think that think about helping people, yeah, and how you can do that, but also think about ways that your practice can harm people and really try to work to mitigate that. If we were to sort of just lay out a bit more explicitly, like what the actual overlap is between, say, uh, uh, an ideal divinatory practice and an ideal therapeutic practice, um, it, I feel like we've already hit this idea that you know, active listening, um, basic sort of counseling skills, uh, ways to do trauma-informed care, as you know, these are things out that that uh, a diviner would benefit from availing themselves of. But in terms of the overlap. Beyond that, is there are there other places that you see as being particularly active or fruitful places where these two things come together? I guess like <laughs> I would begin that question by thinking about a major difference. You know, as a therapist, the whole work is predicated in an ongoing relationship, right? Whereas most divination, I think, is one shot. You know, people do come back and have, say, like a diviner that they see, say, on a more regular basis. But I think that's more the exception and not the norm. Now, that may not be true for everybody. I don't want to sort of overstep my bounds here and make assumptions. But I think in a, in a kind of like modal case, you've got kind of like one shot to do something, <laughs> right? And, and so I think like that sets a lot of constraints about um, how deep you want to go in a relationship, <laughs> right? Uh, how much you want to open up, how much the person can is willing to kind of taken in one dose. So I think like thinking about dosage matters. I think like I, I also can ground this in in some of the you know psychotherapy research. And um, one of the things that I did in the, at the end of my dissertation was sort of at length talked about the similarities between psychotherapy and divination. And one of the models for thinking about like how psychotherapy works is called the common factors model. The idea being that like, yeah, a behaviorist, a cognitive therapist, and a psychoanalyst are doing different things, but there's some things that they're all doing similarly. Like they've got a trusting relationship. They're providing validation and empathy. There's trust and kind of uh, ideally, if things are going well, a kind of shared vision of what the task is. Uh, what the problem is and how you're going to work on it. And um, so these two researchers, um, Frank and Frank, talked about like what are the universal factors across like 
any <laughs> psychotherapy, right? And if you actually look at them, they all apply to divination. Like one is an emotionally charged, confiding relationship with a helping person. Yep. Two is a healing setting. Now that can be pretty broad. I mean, these days it can it can be Zoom, <laughs> but but some sort of like setting where some sort of healing practice is taking place. So three, uh, a rationale for or a conceptual scheme or a myth that pr provides some plausible explanation for the patient's symptoms and prescribes a ritual or procedure for resolving them. Now a divination might not necessarily like resolve a problem, but it is ideally like trying to prescribe something and there is a kind of worldview and conceptual scheme for making sense of what's going on. The fourth one is a ritual or procedure that requires active participation of both patient and therapist and is believed by both to be the means of restoring the patient's health. And so I think similarly, like querents come to a diviner to get something. Usually they get it. They're trying to get some sort of knowledge or an experience that's going to help them with the issue that they came to solve. So there's a kind of like huge overlap. And I think all of this is about relationship. It's about a person coming with a problem and, and you doing your best to understand that, not just understand it, but provide a sort of conceptual framework that broadens the person's understanding of it and then provides some idea for, given the system that you're working in, how the person should go forward. So I think at root, like therapy and divination are predicated on relationship. I think even, it, it's, especially if you're someone who in your divinatory practice works with spirits or ancestors, I mean, I don't need to tell anybody this, but that's all about relationship. So it's a lot about respect and trust and mutuality and about thinking carefully about what your power is and how you wield it. Shifting a little bit from the idea of, of relationships and more towards the personal a little bit. I, I wanted, because we're, we're, we're sort of past an hour, so I don't want to hold you too much longer. I, I did want to, there, are, I did want to cover your, your personal practice in, in theurgy, especially as it relates to, I'm going, I feel like I'm going to say this wrong. I amplicus. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, marvelous. Okay. Because uh, I, um, you know, Iambicus, it's a name, it floats around, I see it a whole bunch, um, but my primary sort of touchstone for Iambicus is the sort of uh, dark Gnosticism that is suggested as having been associated with the uh, Solobusca tarot deck in, in, in Game of Saturn, and I feel like that might not be the best lens through which to view... <laughs> uh theurgy though it is a fun it's a fun spooky book if if you want to read something that is um honestly a little a little too hard to hold because it's just a big it's a big art book basically anyway this isn't important what's important is you um so so could you could you talk for a moment about your your theurgic practice and 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 iamblicus yeah yeah so i you know i just tweeted about this last night because i was i was re revisiting this great book uh by gregory shaw called theurgy and the soul and he he does a lot of contrasting between say like christian thought and neoplatonism and gnosticism so and i <laughs> i had this sort of like shitposty tweet that was like are you interested in gnosticism and, and think it expresses some deep truth about the world but you're not an edgelord iamblicus's theurgy might be for you because <laughs> it's actually like it's not dark at all it's it's, it's quite light it's lovely i think so who who is iamblicus iamblicus was this um syrian neoplatonist uh philosopher of arab origin born in the third century um he was like a mystic and philosopher 
with a kind of formidable lineage. Uh, so he was a student of Porphyry, uh, who and Porphyry studied with Plotinus. So there's like just massive kind of intellectual uh, lineage here. But he wrote this series of letters to Porphyry, um, and he was disagreeing with Porphyry's criticisms of theurgy. And um, this book, this is, book has been like compiled under the title like On the Mysteries of the Egyptians, Chaldeans, and the Assyrians. And in this work, he lays out the system of ritual and theurgy that served as a kind of justification for the polytheistic practices of the day. Now. I think that uh, a lot of the ideas that, that at least I've been hearing about in the occult community lately about like animism and like Tolkien's notion of subcreation and like relationship to place and land and, you know, ways of thinking about like talismans and rituals, it's all there in Iamblichus. So his, um, so what is theurgy? So theurgy is God work as opposed to like theology, which is like God talk or God logic. Um, and these are also opposed to like thaumaturgy, which is like miracle work, like more sort of like uh, operational magic. So theurgy is like, Iamblichus thought that, you know, through ritual, you are embodying the cosmogony. You are, you're embodying kind of like the creation and you're participating in creation. You are becoming godlike without becoming inhuman or non-human. You're not giving anything up. And so his vision of theurgy was polytheistic, pluralistic, local. His vision of the universe was one in which the world itself was a theophany or a revelation of the divine. So like in contrast to Christian thinkers or Gnostic thinkers who saw matter as like fallen and in need of redemption, he saw matter itself as like the body of our salvation. He saw matter as like inherently imbued with and um, disclosive of divinity. His was a system in which the soul is deeply implicated in material reality. And, you know, like my own practice, um, I was into Zen Buddhism, like well before I was into occultism. And so my practice is grounded in meditation and prayer and, and not like wanting a thing and trying to get it with the help of gods or spirits, but about, you know, transforming something in the forge of the soul. And so a lot of my practice is really just about honoring. I have a very strong, you know, ancestral practice. Uh, I have altars to the, what the, in the Corpus Hermeticum would be called the seven governors, you know, the, the seven planetary intelligences. And, you know, I, I make daily offerings. I recite Orphic hymns. I, I, I be with, I just be. <laughs> And through through prayer and offering and dedication and devotion, you know, it's it's more sort of like a polytheistic, paganistic version of like bodhisattva practice. Like I'm not in it to like get a mansion or like become powerful and you know speak to dead wizards. Like that's cool if that's your thing, but I'm trying to be like, how can I be the best human being I can possibly be to help other people who are suffering? Interesting. So so beyond the sort of the, the devotional work do you and the meditative work do you get into any sort of like big kind of ritual this and that like are, is there any sort of is there a place in your practice for i don't know um lighting a whole bunch of candles and doing a lot of chanting and shouting and you know the kind of the i feel like the stuff when people think about like yeah i have a magical practice like the stuff that i think a lot of people might jump to is 
is, you know, there's a circle on the floor and I am shouting at something in Latin, which, you know, I don't, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big arbital guy. So I'm very used to just like, you know, you just do it in English. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> right. Like as Sam Block says, like, uh, like yelling at candles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do my share of that. Um, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm familiar with some barbarous names, right? <laughs> Now my partner and I did a, a ritual recently to invoke Hermanubis into a into a statue and do some work with the dead. I do I do a, I dabble a bit in image magic. I've been this has been the I decided like 2020 is the year that I was really going to go hard on astrology. So I've been like studying traditional astrology pretty hard with the with the intent to eventually be making talismans. And I, I've done a little bit of this, and you know that. That's a fair amount of candle lighting and suffumigation and getting the right materia together. And that that stuff's good fun. It definitely, I don't know. It's just always nice to have like something. I, as a, It's weird because like as a kid, I think I had this strong sense of like, well, you need an excuse to have something on fire. And, and <laughs> you know, as an adult, it's nice to be like, yeah, no, the excuse is, um, you know, I, I need to uh, say hi to St. Sebastian and that's fine. That's, that's where the fire is. So actually, the getting into astrology, there's something else that I definitely wanted to ask you about before we close off, which is that, you know, you have all these, you know, publications on your CV relating to psychology, which is not terribly surprising, given that you are a psychologist. But you also have a number in the Astrophysical Journal of Letters re- relating to supernova remnants. And um, that is cool as hell. Uh, but also, uh, what? What? <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, my my. So I'm a Sagittarius rising. <laughs> so so uh, you know my my path has been a little meandering through life. <laughs> I I, um, I went to high school at a uh, public boarding school called the North Carolina School of uh, Science and Mathematics, and um, I had the great privilege there of having a teacher who um, had just. He worked at a Goddard Space Flight Center um, before he came to NCSSM, and um, he had some data from a grant he had proposed for, and he was like, hey, do you want to work on this over the summer with me? And uh, I was like, absolutely, yes, I do, because at the time I was really into physics and astrophysics and all this stuff. And um, I, yeah, so I studied uh, dead stars. Uh, A supernova remnant, for those of you who don't know, is, uh, you know, stars eat themselves. (laughs) They, They burn their own fuel uh they they fuse hydrogen into helium and and go up the you know periodic table of the elements making heavier and heavier uh elements and in that kind of fusion you get energy out it's exothermic as as the physicists say until you get up to iron once you get up to iron you you can't get energy out you have to put energy in to fuse iron and so what happens is in like massive stars they build up this iron core that just like collects and collects and collects. And eventually like the, the star has less and less fuel to burn for energy. So the pressure going out is eventually not strong enough compared to the gravity of the iron core. And then you get, if the star is heavy enough, uh, greater than like 1.4 solar masses, uh, you get what's called a core collapse. Like the, the star falls in on itself and either becomes a black hole or it just undergoes a massive explosion and sends out all kinds of elements and plasma and energy in this enormous shock wave that lights up 
all of the gas around it because it's being hit with this overwhelming force. Uh, and so that's that's what I studied. I, I have three publications um, studying, in particular, uh, pulsar wind nebulae, which are like a pulsar is also like a thing that can be created in a supernova. And sometimes they like fly through space. And just like when a boat goes through water, there's like the the water flows around it. This massive, like highly magnetized, crazy spinning thing is hurtling through space and creating like a bow shock nebula around it. That's uh, kind of cool looking. So yeah, I was doing physics for a while, and then I eventually, for various reasons, uh, switched over in college to studying philosophy. And um, it wasn't until like uh, my late twenties that I finally realized that like, oh, this is um, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, and I, I retooled in, in psychology. That might be the most exciting and metal like 45 seconds that has ever been on this program <laughs> just you describing the iron core collapsing on itself like it it's somewhere between like a death clock song and just like high fantasy i just i'm into it um yeah i mean it's it's one of those things that i mean it's like uh when I was applying to grad school in psychology, people like looked at my CV and they were like, what the fuck? <laughs> but it's also one of these things. It's like, you know, if someone wants to, you know, I have all kinds of beliefs, not just about like the occult, but about like science and what science is and what psychology is and what psychology should be and whether human experiences is, is real and sort of stands on its own or is reducible to like atoms in a void. And if someone wants to go toe to toe with me on this, like, I've got my credentials. Like I've studied philosophy. I've studied, I've studied more math than probably 98% of the human population. It's like, I know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, this is all not just sort of like a intuitive gut belief for me, but this is like deeply considered stuff that I've come to over a long period of study. I personally have no interest in platforming new atheists. I, I, I feel like they are a kind of, um, I feel like it's just fascism by another means. But if you find one who wants to debate you and get wrecked, I am happy to host that on this program. That that does not sound like a good time, but <laughs> maybe we could do that sometime. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that the sort of the glee of seeing someone get ground into the dirt by by your your mixture of spiritual power and empirical know-how would be fun for like a little bit but then you just kind of have to keep watching it because it's not over yet and then we all we all just feel dirty at the end i don't know um the other thing about me is i have mars and libra and so like facing conflict head on like that is like oh god no can we not do that like i i, I just want to empower people and like <laughs> boost people up you know like i don't know if i want to get into fights <laughs> that's entirely reasonable Thank you so much for being on. I feel like we should probably close it off around now. But um, if people want to learn more about you, they want to learn more about your research, they want to read the dissertation, which is really just, I, I'm so glad you made that just like public, that people could just have that because it's its such a wonderful thing to have out there. But wh where should they go? What should they do? Yeah, so you can go to my website, which is rainmasonphd.com, R-A-I-N-M-A-S-O-N-P-H-D.com. I threw something up there recently so that I at least have something. You can also get at me at rainmasonphd at gmail.com if, if you want to have a conversation about it. Of this i'm also on twitter that's kind of one of my main social venues these days and uh my my app uh handle there is 500 lives as a fox 500 lives as a fox or lives it looks like lives as a fox but it's a reference to his um koan so I, i'm there posting some mixture of psychology and astrology and shit posting just trying to have a good time so th that's probably one of the main places that people interact with me these days I mean, that is that is where I found you, which 
maybe says <laughs> I'm glad you did. as much about about how much time I spend also on that site. Um, but this has been really just a joy. Thank you so much for doing this and for being on. This was this was a, a real a real wonderful thing for me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really really grateful and honored to be a, a part of your podcast. Thank you so much to Rain for that thoughtful conversation. I will put a link to their website in the show notes and also another link to their dissertation, which really is a wonderful, wonderful piece of research that merits, I, I argue, your time and attention. This has been Witch Hassle. Thank you so much for listening. Please, by all means, reach out on Twitter or Instagram if you want the show to research something or you have like a plague magic thing you want to suggest or you just want to i don't know chat love to chat you know i i found rain on twitter and i do spend a great deal of time there some would say too much so you know good place to strike up a conversation if you want to and if you want to support the show and the work that it does by all means uh go to patreon.com slash Witch Hassle, there's a little bit of Patreon-only content on there, and hopefully I'll be able to add more of that soon. This has been Witch Hassle. Thank you so much for listening. Good luck with the work ahead. <laughs>